Second Peter chapter 2 offers a striking and a disturbing contrast to the pathway to exaltation that is outlined in Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, chapter 2 then talks about the trajectory and the eventual end of those who follow a different path. And uh, this is a path, as Peter says in verse 17, that leads to forever mists of darkness, or as he puts it, um, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. So that is the eventual end of this other path. Um, while this uh, chapter is rather disturbing, and such a such a almost sad contrast. You know, it almost conjures uh, memories of, of what Jacob said when he was so sad that he had to pierce tender hearts and and address topics that he didn't want to. Um, it it does provide us with much needed guidance. Uh, specifically, it helps to identify the tactics and the rhetoric of the enemies of Christ. This is a critical role of Scripture. And President Benson spoke of the way in which the Book of Mormon does this. And the things that he's saying about the Book of Mormon can apply very much as well to 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, The Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ it confounds false doctrines and lays down contention. It fortifies the humble followers of Christ against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. The type of apostates in the Book of Mormon are similar to the type we have today. God, with his infinite foreknowledge, so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false educational, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. And so while this chapter is unpleasant, it also arms us with a better understanding of the tactics of the enemies of Christ, the tactics of the adversary. I would add that um, the, the warning to the saints that Peter is speaking to is, is very explicit, and it comes right out in verse 1 about... Uh, how there are false prophets and false teachers. However, there's, I think, also an implicit warning that comes to the surface as you read this chapter to these early saints. And, and it is to protect those who are weak in the faith. There's a reference in verse 14 to unstable souls and says that they can be beguiled. And so I think it is that, uh, that this is a secondary and implicit warning that is in this chapter. Well, with that introduction, let's go to verse 1. Now, verses 1 through 3 have this statement that I'll first read in its entirety, and then we'll go um, uh, to certain phrases that are inside of it and uh, come to a, a deeper understanding of what they're saying. So... Verses 1 through 3, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be 
false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Well, back to verse 1 and false prophets. I think it's easy to um, create an image in our mind of a counterfeit version of an oracle or a prophet of God. A counterfeit Moses or a counterfeit Peter. Uh, and in that case, we would imagine someone who poses as a religious figure. It would just be of the wrong church. But I think we may do well to broaden our understanding of what a false prophet is. His medium of communication would not necessarily just be a religious one but it would be anyone who is proposing a system of salvation, be it political, uh, be it religious, be it uh, economical. Um, there, there, are, there are several ways in which there can be such a thing as a false prophet, and, and the same could be said of a false Christ. Um, then the word false teachers is used, and we find out what their curriculum is. It's full of, as it says in verse 1, damnable heresies. Well, that phrase is kind of similar to what we read in Second Peter chapter 1, when Peter, in relating his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, said, uh, that these are not cunningly devised fables. Well, damnable heresies are cunningly devised fables. They are untruths. They are lies. Korahor comes to mind in particular, and we'll have opportunity later in this chapter to compare some of Korahor's words with what Peter is telling us about the, the mode of discourse of these false teachers. Paul used the term heresies as well. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 19, he said, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. We have a modern-day prophet who gave a, a, an evergreen talk at uh, BYU many years ago. It's Bruce R. McConkie. This is a, a BYU devotional on June 1st, 1980, called The Seven Deadly Heresies and uses this word again, heresies. He, um, he, he, he lists these heresies, but I first want to read a list of axioms that uh, Elder McConkie wanted to establish before launching into a discussion of some specific heresies that um, have sway in our day. He says this, now let me list some axioms. I guess in academic circles we call these caveats. There is no salvation in believing a false doctrine. Truth, diamond truth, truth unmixed with error, truth alone leads to salvation. 
What we believe determines what we do. No man can be saved in ignorance of God and his laws. Man is saved no faster than he gains knowledge of Jesus Christ and the saving truths of his everlasting gospel. Gospel doctrines belong to the Lord, not to men. They are his. He ordained them. He reveals them, and he expects us to believe them. The doctrines of salvation are not discovered in a laboratory, or on a geological field trip, or by accompanying Darwin around the world. They come by revelation and in no other way. Our sole concern in seeking truth should be to learn and believe what the Lord knows and believes. Providentially, he has set forth some of his views in the Holy Scriptures. Our goal as mortals is to gain the mind of Christ, to believe what he believes, to think what he thinks, to say what he says, to do what he does, and to be as he is. We are called upon to reject all heresies and cleave unto all truth. Only then can we progress according to the divine plan. As the Lord has said, whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Then says Elder McConkie, Please note that knowledge is gained by obedience. It comes by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Uh, it's, it's well worth going to this talk and reading um, through the list of heresies that he, that he lists there, but I, I wanted to go through those axiomatic truths that he prevent, presents, or as he said, caveats. I think he is tapping into the same spirit that Peter is speaking in here in this in this chapter. Well then in verse 1 Peter says after damnable heresies even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now something's happening here because swift destruction is something we see in the scriptures when people deny the Lord and his way his covenant way. That's when destruction really occurs in dramatic fashion. And now notice with that thought in mind what it says in verse 2, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Now way can most certainly um, be a, a euphemism for priesthood. And so if you read it this way, it says pernicious counterfeit priesthood or pernicious counterfeit ways. And that would be worthy of the type of swift destruction that's mentioned in verse 1. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So if these pernicious ways are so pernicious that they cause the actual way, the actual priesthood pathway, and the actual way who is Jesus Christ to be evil spoken of, then you know that you are dealing with a false prophet. And then, in verse 3, covetousness is mentioned and feigned words. And the idea of making merchandise of you, uh, a, a lot could be said about that. Um, this is something that false prophets and false teachers tend to do. They tend to see other people as means. Uh, 
people that they can use towards an end, who they can mm, uh, hornswoggle and, and cajole and, uh, and take advantage of. Okay, well verses 4 through 9 then make a very specific point. It has to do with, as it says in verse 9, the godly who are delivered out of temptation and the rest who most certainly do meet the damnation that is mentioned in verse 3. So here's verses 4 through 9. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example or ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knowing then, or I like to throw then in there, but the Lord then knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So there is a pattern that has been established throughout Scripture where the righteous are spared, but the wicked most certainly are cast down to hell. And I believe here that we, and we'll go on, of course, to talk about uh, characters such as Korahor, who are false prophets, but there, again, is an implicit warning to those who are weak in the faith, uh, those souls who are unstable, because they can be uh, caught in this, uh, in this swift and terrible current. Verse 10, and verses, really verses 10 through... Um, 19 describe the tactics of these false prophets and teachers. Verse 10 says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. We could probably read that as despising the government of God. Again, a reference to a counterfeit priesthood. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, and not afraid to speak evil as di of dignities. There is a certain reverence that we hold for our dignities, for our prophets. And if you get to the point where you're brazen enough to speak evil against them, then you are on the pathway to apostasy, this pathway that ends in damnation and in mists of darkness that Peter's talking about here. Here's a quote by President Spencer W. Kimball that explains this. He says, They speak evil of dignities, and of the things that they understood not, says Peter. They complain of the programs, belittle the constituted authorities, and generally set, them up, set themselves up as judges. After a while, they absent themselves from church meetings for imagined offenses and fail to pay their tithes and meet their other church obligations. In a word, they have the spirit of apostasy, which is almost always the harvest of the seeds of criticism. As Peter puts it, they perish in their own corruption. Verse 11 says, Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, 
bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. So we're going to draw, Peter is going to draw a comparison between the manner of speaking of angels and the manner of speaking of these false prophets, which he calls brute beasts in verse 12. He says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of the things that they can understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So, as a contrast between angels, who we know from Nephi, speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, these natural brute beasts, they speak in a different language, and we learn what it is in verse 11. It is in railing accusations. They, as it says in verse 13, shall receive the, word of unrighteous, the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. In other words, they're so brazen that they don't even have to hide their rioting. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. While they feast with you suggests that they are clothed as a sheep, as a fellow sheep as you are, but they have the nature of ravening wolves. Verse 14 says, Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. Uh, we could say a great deal about that. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, practices cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, Balaam, let's finish telling his, his story, and then we'll come back and provide some background to that. In verse 16, it says that Balaam was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass, speaking with man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. So who is Balaam? Well, Balaam was an Israelite king, <clears throat> but he didn't live in Sinai. Uh, he lived in the land of Moab, and the, the king of Moab at that time was Balak. This account is found in Numbers. The children of Israel then were still in exile in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but uh, Balak made a specific request of Balaam that he could appeal to Balaam's prophetic gifts or his priesthood gifts in order to levy a curse towards the Israelite people. He reasoned that this would be an effective way to destroy them uh, to thwart them at the least and to destroy them at the most. Instead of using military means, why not call upon a man of God who could levy a curse? And remember during this time, there, there was a, a thin line in people's understanding between someone who was a man of God and who had this priesthood power and someone who just simply had magic that came from their own accord. Well, Balaam uh, initially um, rejected Balak's offer because Balak's offer, by the way, was, was of, of great riches if he would teach Balak how to curse the army of Israel. Uh, this is in Numbers um, uh, 22 through 24 is where this story is told. And the most notable part that we tend to pull from this is a talking donkey. Uh, there are some things to be said about that later as well. But uh, Balaam um, first, first does refuse Balak's offer, but then... He eventually succumbs, and he <clears throat> he tells Balak 
to engage in a plan that involves sexual sin and idolatry. So those two, those two things, and that those would be the way to bring the Israelites down. Uh, and so it, it smacks of a secret combination and sounds similar to the demise of John the Baptist and also of uh, an incident I think that's in Ether chapter 8, or it might be 7 if I remember right, but the, where the daughter of Jared is used as a pawn to seduce, seduce Achish. So Balaam's plan includes having Moabite women, in this kind of same manner, seducing the men of Israel. So they're to go into the Israelite camp and seduce these men and to persuade them to offer sacrifices to heathen gods. And then this would destroy their spirituality and destroy them spiritually. So that's what Balaam did. And uh, Bruce R. McConkie had very strong words for this. He said, the doctrine of Balaam. Um, is being willing to divine prophecy for hire, or it's to prophesy for hire, in other words. It's to give counsel contrary to the divine will. It's to pervert the right way of the Lord, all with a view to gaining wealth and the honors of men. In effect, to preach for money or to gain personal power and influence. In the very nature of things, such as a course such a course is a perversion of the right way of the Lord. Uh, Balaam was a man who had the capacity to speak in the name of God as a prophet. Uh, he descended to such a depraved state that a dumb ass, as it says in verse 16, spoke wisdom to him. I believe that's why that example is there in Numbers. Uh, that, that's, that's the literary device that's being used there. Peter goes on to tell us about the end of these, uh, of these false prophets and teachers. <clears throat> says some very interesting things here in verse 17 and 18. He says, these, and we could, we could insert these false prophets, are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mists of darkness is reserved forever. Now we think of damnation as being a state where your progress is damned. You can no longer move forward just as a dam would have that effect on water. We learn here that it's that one of the fruits of that lack of progress or that, or that damnation is a mist of darkness. And of course Lehi's dream comes to mind. It suggests that in this damned state, there would be an ongoing and eternal state of blindness and confusion. And uh, that, that seems somehow to be related to damnation. So that's, a, I think, an important insight. Then in 18, we find a phrase that is very similar to something we find in Alma 30. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Well, swelling words of vanity. This verse in Alma 30 has a striking similarity to that. This is in verse 31, and we're talking about Korahor 
it says that Korahor did rise up in great swelling words before Alma, and did revile against the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. That pretty much exposes um, Korahor's entire M.O. Uh, in, in verse 19, where, where Peter says that the false prophets promised them liberty, even though, ironically, they themselves are the servants of corruption, we think again of Korahor. Uh, think of this, for example, in verse 27 of Alma 30, when Korahor says, And thus ye lead away this people after the foolish traditions of your fathers, and according to your own desires, and ye keep them down even as it were in bondage, that ye may glut yourselves with the labors of their hands, that they durst not look up with boldness, and that they durst not enjoy their rights and privileges. So, this is an oblique promise of liberty, to use Peter's phrase, promising them liberty. It's in verse 11, when um, again, when Peter compares these false prophets to angels who speak by the power of the Holy Ghost and says that their mechanism is through railing accusations. Well, there is Korahor's railing accusation. He can't exactly um, put forward a better system of salvation, but he can certainly rail and accuse, as he does there in Alma 30, verse 27. Uh, the, the, he can accuse the leaders of the church for wanting to glut themselves uh, keep the uh, keep the people in bondage, so that that is a really um, telling exposure of the tactics and rhetorics of the enemies of Christ, and we know of course that from um, from the Korahor story in Alma chapter thirty that in the end Korahor actually was deceived the entire time, and so as verse nineteen says Korahor too was a servant of corruption. Also consider the word way as it's prevented and presented in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And you can see that what Korahor is doing here is um, while he rails and accuses, there is an implicit mm, promise of liberty and of a new quote-unquote way. Well, um, Verses 20 through 22. These describe the end of these false prophets and false teachers. So here's the end of the pathway that uh, Peter lays out in this chapter. It, uh, actually, I think before I read these three verses, I want to read this verse. This is Alma 24, verse 30. He says, and thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. Now, Peter is going to teach us a similar principle here in verses 22 through 20, 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. And Peter's saying the same thing. The word that uh, 
Alma used is that they've once been enlightened by the Spirit of God. The way that Peter puts it is that they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then Peter says in verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her own wallowing in the mire. And that's a reference to Proverbs uh, 26 and 11. We do gain the sense from this passage and from other scriptures that those who embrace the covenant pathway will be worse off if they forsake it than those who never had known it. This is expressed in a different way in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 82, verse 3, where it says, For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation.